16. Verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feedings with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all. You may be seated, please. Judgment has been in the news lately. Bill Cosby was America's dad. Many of us cut our teeth on the Cosby show. Cliff Huxtable, the successful, well-to-do father, the one that we all claimed as our own father. And just this week, we heard the verdict slam down upon Bill Cosby's case. Guilty, guilty, guilty. All three charges of sexual misconduct by Andrea Constant against Bill Cosby was declared by the jury to be guilty. Now, they're going to appeal, but perhaps he'll spend the rest of his life um, in prison. The term judgment for us in a secular society has weight and it has force. I mean, you only need to look around. Ask Harvey Weinstein. Ask Bill Cosby. I mean, who else? Ask Matt Lauer. I mean, we could go on and on with our lists, couldn't we? Well, there's no problem talking about judgment when it comes to sexual misconduct outside in the secular world. But in the church, within the church, it's good for Christians to ask the question, what does the Bible teach about judgment? What does Jude teach about judgment? Who does, God, who does Jude say that God judges? And how are we to understand something that is so holy and so harsh as the passage that Brad just read for us? So we're going to think about judgment together. Are you ready? Who does Jude say that God judges? Let's look at the text together. Lower your eyes to verse 12. You have the whole of Jude in your bulletin. Look at verse 12. Jude describes them with these metaphors. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you without fear. In other words, they, are, they have unintended consequences. People are coming into the church. They are leaders of some prominent position, and they are opening up with their creativity. Let's add a little excitement to the Lord's table. And so they are allowing people not only to eat before other people eat, not only to be disarrayed, but they're actually bringing sexual immorality into the church. A love feast in worship. And the church just goes, huh, okay. He goes on, he says, shepherds who are feeding themselves. These are probably men who had some authority in the church. They are waterless clouds. They are swept along by winds. They have dashed hopes. Whatever they think that they're going to bring for you in their leadership, it is just going to be a dashed hope. There are clouds that do not bring rain. They're fruitless trees in late autumn. They're twice dead. They're uprooted. I mean, Jude is like going back to his uh, English class, if he lived in our day, pulling up every metaphor he'd ever used in every English paper, and he's just heaping them on these guys. Shepherds feeding themselves, hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, twice dead, wild waves of the sea. They just bring foam and trash onto the shore. It's not refreshing. They're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These guys, Jude says, are like a falling star in an Oklahoma sky. 
and they disappear and burn out. Because they have been and they will be judged. What does the Bible say about judgment? Well, Jude continues here in verse 14. He says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they may have committed in any in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What does the Bible teach about judgment? Here's what it teaches about judgment. Sinners will be judged. Any sinners in the room? Sinners will be judged. And one of the things that we struggle as a church to talk about is the nature of judgment. Because we fail to understand that the way that judgment comes upon us is both incredibly holy and incredibly harsh. The Bible says that when we die, immediately upon death, we are with the Lord. And we know this, of course, from Paul, right? Paul says in Philippians 1.23 that I desire to die and to be with Christ. It is better than to live. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Immediately upon death, you and I are instantaneously in the presence of Christ. Immediately. And yet... We don't yet have our resurrected bodies. This is what theologians have called through the centuries the intermediate state after death and before the resurrection of our bodies. Are we with the Lord? Absolutely. The Bible gives that term. He gives a general term for heaven. You are with him in his presence. And yet in some way, although you are completely glorified, completely whole before your Savior in some way. You are not yet as you will be in the resurrection of the body. Because it's even the martyrs who in heaven say in Revelation chapter 6, they, they cry out to the Lord, when will you vindicate our blood? They're in his presence. And yet there's a sense in which they yet have not received their bodies. And we know that once God created us physical beings, and that when Jesus Christ returns again, all of us will come with him. That's what the Bible calls the rapture. When he returns again, and we are united with our physical bodies. And the Bible says that when Jesus returns to earth, he will bring all of his saints with him. And we will be whole. And the Bible is very specific that it says that those who do not believe in Christ will be judged according to their works. Romans 2, 5, Revelation 20, 12 through 13. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 and Matthew 12, 36 tell us that every secret thing, every word, every thought will receive God's judgment. Jesus himself says on that day, Matthew 12, 36, People will give account for every careless word they speak. All secrets will be made known. And of course, nobody's thoughts, nobody's 
words are, are completely perfect and pure. Nobody's. God judges sinners. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So who does God judge? God is an infinitely holy God who judges sinners. And so what's the catch? The only catch is a thing called grace. Because when we stand before the Father in heaven, and one day, as real as you hear my voice, you will stand before him. And you will have splayed out before your infinitely holy Father everything you've ever done in secret, every careless thought, word, and deed. And it will pierce you to the depth of your being to then see Jesus your Savior if you trust in his finished work. The perfect one, the only one who never had a careless thought, word, or deed. The one who intercedes for you at the Father's right hand. Say upon that pronouncement all of those things that Timothy, Pete, Blake did are on me. And he covers us with, with his love so much so that the Father, when he reads this out, the Father thinks immediately of what Christ did on the cross. And he sees that Christ paid at the cross for every one of those thoughtless words and deeds. And so we don't know exactly what it's going to be like when we hear that, when we, you know, hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We will all appear before the, the bema, the judgment seat of Christ. Bema is in Greek. That's the word for judgment seat. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has received in the body, whether good or bad. And then to hear your Savior reach his arms around you and say, he is faultless because he's in me. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. But I, I tell you about our judgment because it is a real thing. And it helps you to be able to realize the depth of what Christ did for you on the cross. And it is no excuse for us, therefore, to say, well, you know what, divorce, God really doesn't care that much about divorce. Oh, yes, he does. God really doesn't care how I use my mouth. Of course he does. But these things are all, as Will said earlier, they are motivated in our confession of faith out of what Christ has done for us so that we ought to live holy lives because of what he has done for us. And here, Jude is preaching to this young church who has let these guys in and begin to lead them and taking them all in all kinds of uh, licentious ways. And Jude uses a book in First Enoch, and he quotes from First Enoch. First Enoch is not a canonical book. It was a book that um, most likely, although it's hard to prove, that Jude's opponents knew very, very well and even used perhaps in convincing the Christians in that church, listen, if God gives us grace. Why don't you just live however you want? It's okay. He'll cover you. And so Jude pulls that resource down, kind of like Paul pulls Eratus and Epimenides. He pulls, you know, throughout the Bible, there are people outside of Scripture that the writers pull in to quote, right? So he pulls first Enoch in, and he quotes, and he says, uh, Enoch, who is the seventh from Adam, the one who was taken up, the one who didn't die, remember? He was taken up to the Lord in Genesis 5. He says, Before, Behold, the Lord will come with ten thousands 
of holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of their unrighteousness. And I'm telling you, those guys, Christians in Jude's day, who you're following, judgment will come upon them and upon all people who may profess Christ with their lips, but they have never really been broken of their idolatry and repented before him. They've just used Jesus to get whatever they want. That's not the gospel. Jude said judgment is coming. It is holy and it is harsh. And our only hope in that judgment is to be able to say with Christ, but for our sake he became sin so that we who are sin might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus came down for us and he lived a perfect life we could not live and he died the death that we all deserve to die. Do you see that in your text? Listen, this is a hard text. I mean, talk about like getting in, like this is, you're quoting extra canonical passages from First Enoch and they're doing that to drill down in these Christians the notion of judgment so that we are not blind to it. God judges sinners. We all sin. And the Christian's only hope is that before the bema seat of Christ, we're in his presence forever. It is the Lord Jesus himself who says, oh, these are my children. And they are spotless and sinless. And we are glorified and made whole before him. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. It is worth a thousand sermons just thinking about the fact that Jesus before his father will say, I know you. I treasure you. You're mine. Every thoughtless deed is wiped away. I've taken them all. Every one of them he took upon the cross. And it's important for us to talk about judgment because oftentimes we as a church have a, have a, um, have a faulty understanding of what judgment is. Because when we talk about judgment, we talk about it in a way that doesn't allow people to struggle over sin in the church. What gets people sent to hell in Scripture, which is a very real place. What gets people sent there? Is it their sexual immorality? Is it their unkind thought? Is it their rude deed? Is it the actual behavior of that sin? Friends, that is not what gets people sent to hell. What gets people sent to hell is their willful, their sin beneath that sin, it is that desire for them to want not anybody else's righteousness, namely Jesus's, but to handle it on our own. That is what people, that is what gets people sent to hell. It is the fierce and awful idolatry of saying, I do not need Christ. I can earn God's favor by myself. No, thank you, Jesus, for your righteousness. I have a righteousness of my own. That is ultimately what gets people condemned. What is the unpardonable sin in Scripture? It is rejecting Christ. It is rejecting the Holy Spirit. It is turning away, ultimately, from receiving Christ's righteousness. So why do I bring this up? I bring this up for a very practical reason. We need to be a church who has room to allow people to struggle over sin. And we don't need to ever be comfortable in our sin. 
We need to constantly be fighting it and struggling over it. And so as people come to Trinity, this place is going to get messier if it's an honest place. And you're going to have people who are moms and dads are pulling their hair out because they're just about to like, you know, murder their children on Sunday morning. And they're going to come here and we're going to be a place where they can, and we're going to say, it's okay. We are a place that rests. Because we want you so badly to fight your deeper sense of righteousness and to know that your righteousnesses are what ultimately damage you. But if you can come and struggle over your individual sins and confess them in the confession of sin and to be able to say, yes, Jesus, your righteousness is enough for me, then we're making progress together. Even though we may struggle over particular sins, we don't want that to be the case. We want to make progress. But let me ask you the question. What does progress look like for every person in this room? I mean, I know for you it looks like you're perfect. But for somebody else, you know what? It might just be just a little. They may be like on your scale of holiness, they may be like a negative 10. But you know what? Now they're a negative 9.5. And now they're a negative 9. Progress is what's important for us as a church. Not perfection. Struggle over sin. Ultimately victory, yes. But for some of us who have struggled with sin since we were five-year-old little boys or little girls, tendencies in our heart, we may never actually be freed from that sin until glory. But you know what our task is until glory? Fight it. And when we see that you've given into a sin, that you have just let it own you, that you've let it, you've ceased to struggle over it, that's why you have elders who come alongside you and say, oh, brother, oh, sister, we love you. Please don't give into this sin. Keep fighting it with us. And just as sinful as anybody in this room is, so also am I, and so also are the elders of this church. And the leaders of this church are the ones who just need to be the first ones to say, I have no righteousness of my own. It's Christ and Him alone. And to allow Him to have every area of our life and to slowly make us more and more like Him. Jude teaches us that judgment comes to every single one of us. But if you're in Christ, you are covered with His blood. You have no fear of condemnation, Romans chapter 5. The only thing the Father sees at you, about you when He thinks about you is just utter perfection and joy that He has in His Son. He sings over you with His love. It's amazing. But do not neglect the fact that Christ took that judgment for you and you need to lean into that and to see it so that it allows you to see the beauty of Jesus shine all the brighter. It is a holy and a harsh thing. And Jude says in this passage, listen, these guys are grumblers. They're malcontents. They're bored with the gospel. They got beyond the gospel. They're getting creative. They're following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain economic. That's what it means in Greek, to gain advantage, to gain economic advantage. So how are we to understand something so holy and harsh in our society today? There are a lot of people who struggle mightily with this whole idea of hell. And they say if God is a God of love, he couldn't send people to hell. The syllogism goes, if God is a God of love, then he doesn't send people to hell. And if God is a God of judgment, then he can't be a God of love. So what are we to do? 
Um, how do you reconcile these two things? The Bible, friends, insists that you have to hold these two things together. Because if you get rid of a God of wrath, you also simultaneously get rid of a God of love. How could love be defined if it was not over against something about which he gets angry? Otherwise, God just loves you in general. It just has a general kind of love. But that's not the way the Bible teaches uh, his, about his love for you. Scripture says that God has a white, hot, fierce love for you. So much so that Jesus says that you are the apple of his eye, talking about the church as a whole, but you as individually members of it. It is specific in his love for you. It is not this general kind of God is generally a good person. The Bible assumes that over against a God of love is also necessarily a God of judgment. For how else could you define the depth of love in the way that the Bible teaches it? For you would actually have nothing left at all if God was not a, a God of wrath. For love would therefore lose its definition. Some people will say, well, I can't, I can't believe in hell and wrath because I want um, a, more, a more loving God. Well, again, how could you get a more loving God unless it was a God who took upon the wrath of costly love for you on the cross? You don't get a more loving God than that. And you see the picture of Christ on the cross as a picture of the depth of love that you can't even imagine. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God on the cross so that you and I, all of us who place our faith in him, might be freed from that wrath. He endured the curse for us. That's big time love. You want a God who loves more than that? It is impossible. That is greater than your imagination of what love could be. Your Savior dying for you on the cross. Well, other people will say, listen, it's not fair that God saves some <clears throat> from wrath and not others. Okay, let's just assume for a minute. Let's assume for a minute, please stay with me, that I agree with your definition of fairness. Let's assume that, let's take that at face value. That it doesn't seem fair that God would, since some people uh, uh, cast his wrath on some but not on others. Listen, we all have willingly chosen to run from God, right? Anybody still making it yet? Anybody still holy? We've all chosen to run from him, not only in our outward actions, but because we're born with original sin. So the question of fairness is not, is it fair that God should judge some? The question of fairness, is it fair that he should send Christ to save some? I mean, Jesus was with his Father for all eternity in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Is that fair that, that the Lord would say to his son, Jesus, I need you to take on flesh and represent all of humanity in your fleshiness, in your humanity, but be perfect and be divine, fully God, fully divine. And I want you, Jesus, to remain human forever after that. Is that fair? Would you ask your son or daughter to do that? And yet, why did God the Father do that? Because he loved you. And why did Jesus willingly obey? Because your Savior knew every anxious thought you have this morning. He knew every desire you have, and he said yes. And he won you. The question of fairness is, is it fair that God should save any at all? That is amazing grace.
Miroslav Volv was a Cro- he is a Croatian Protestant theologian whose father endured the horrors of the Gulag in the Soviet Union. And he endured himself the, the Yugoslav Wars and saw ethnic cleansing and atrocities that would stagger our imaginations. And there was a conference one time at Yale University where they were arguing about this. It's not fair that God would uh, uh, judge some people. We want a God of love. And Miroslav Volv, the son of a man who had suffered his, almost his entire adult life after, you, uh, after he was born in Soviet concentration camps, and then who himself, Miroslav as a Croatian, endured the horrors of the Yugoslav Wars, stood up and said, brothers and sisters, the important question right now is not, is God fair or is he not? The important question now is that we should all fall on our face and be amazed that God brought that judgment that we are so hard trying to avoid upon himself at the cross. We should be talking in this conference about God's amazing love for us in light of that, not about how we are to avoid a God of wrath and of of God's judgment. People who have been through atrocity don't ask the questions that many of us ask about, you know, can God, you know, be a judging God? Because the only way that people can endure atrocities is if they believe in a God who will ultimately judge and judge perfectly. I mean, you can think about this with the Me Too movement of many women and many women who have been sexually abused, who have never voiced their, um, uh, felt the, the, the courage to voice it. Many women who are just under the horrors of that event in their life. How do Christian women in that situation, although they are right and good to be able to let other people know and for those people to be um, uh, convicted under a court of law, but how are they, if they're not convicted under a court of law, how are they to live? The only way they can is if they trust in the ultimate judgment of God. Christianity provides a framework for us to actually be able to have a flourishing civil society because God's judgment exists. So we're fighting for a God who doesn't judge, a God who's all love, but all of society would break down if we were not able to exercise in some small way, not a political pacifism, but a kind of personal pacifism that doesn't just escalate every single tension in your life with another person. You're able to absorb their blow because you know what? One day the Lord will deal with them. You remember in Matthew um, 25 when, when uh, it's, all, it's in all four of the Gospels, but the story of when they came to get Jesus in the garden, remember the, the soldiers came with Judas? And what did Peter do? Remember Peter pulled out his sword and immediately he pulled out his sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came and they laid hands on him and he, and he stretched out his hands. And then it says, and they, Peter drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. The other gospels say that this was Malchus. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put back your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how could the Scriptures be fulfilled if this was so? 
Jesus rebuked Peter when he tried to exercise the sword against Malchus. And Jesus says, no, let the scriptures be fulfilled. The only way Peter could have put his sword back in his sheath is knowing that one day, someday, judgment will come. The only way Miroslav Volv and other people who have endured horrible tragedies is to be able to trust in the judgment of God. The only way that Michael, earlier in Jude, could not pronounce a rebuke upon Satan, but he could hold back and he could allow the Lord to pronounce his rebuke upon Satan. Why? Because he knew that the Lord would have a better judgment, a more righteous judgment. The struggle over the judgment of God is a very real struggle, and it is, a, it is more and more a conversation that youth are having. It's more and more a conversation that adults are having. But please know that if you get rid of a God of judgment, you also must get rid of a God of love. They go together. And it is a miracle that Jesus would save any of us through his work. That is the question of fairness that we should be talking about. Notice it. Who does, Jesus, who, who does God judge according to Jude? God judge, judges us all. He has a, a particular and specific judgment upon those who are not in Christ for whom hell is reserved for all eternity. Separation from God's mercy, love, and grace. And he has in his loving care for us an amazing appeal before the Father to wrap us in his arms and say, no, this one is spoken for. I love him. And you see this when Jesus himself called Matthew the apostle. Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined in the house and he was with the tax collectors and the sinners and they were coming and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does this teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were expecting victory, and Jesus was with them in their struggle. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus rose and he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came to call, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Friends, the encouraging good news of the gospel is that throughout the book of Jude, which is a white, hot, scathing letter that reaches a crescendo in verse 11 and bleeds out all the way until this passage that we've read today in verse 16, where he mounts up his charge of judgment against these people. You and I are able to say, if you see Christ, the loving one who has come to you, who cares for you more than you know, and he loves you, that he eats with you. He's with you in your struggle over sin, but struggle over it. That is the only way that Jesus himself ministers to us is through our struggle. Because when you shut him out and you say, Jesus, you can have all of my life except for this part. You can take all of my life, but don't touch, don't touch my money. You give all of my life, but please don't touch my, don't touch my sexual behavior. Friends, you are cutting yourself off from the greatest resource that you've ever been given, the Lord himself. And when that happens, look out. Because God loves you too much to let you go on your own once you're his. 
He loves you with an everlasting love, an always and forever costly love. That is big time love, isn't it? Who does God judge? He judges sinners. But those of us who are in Christ are able to be in the Father's presence and glory forever in the heights of his love in heaven and in a recreated heaven and earth with physical bodies. It's going to be amazing. And how are we to think about this? We are able to withhold our own wrath toward those who hurt us because we know that one day, someday, God will bring down vindication and judgment that's righteous and true and good. That's beautiful. And the Lord celebrates that because he gives us a picture of it in the Lord's table that we're about to partake in together. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be able to say, Lord, you do not owe me a good life, that you owe me nothing but wrath. I am not worthy. And Father, thank you that the moment that we say that, Jesus, your son, rushes in to eat with us. Father, help us to say, Lord, you don't owe me anything, but thank you for the grace that you've given to me. Jesus, thank you that you love it when we say that. That is the gospel. It is so simple. It is so profound. And Lord, we have a hard time believing it. Oh, Father, would you help us to do so again, we pray. Thank you, Father, that you will bring down a just judgment upon the whole of the earth. Thank you that by your grace you brought down for Christians that judgment upon Christ so that when we are standing before you one day, Jesus, you will be there and you will be our only appeal. Father, thank you for that love. Conform us, reform us, transform us, we pray, more and more into your image in light of that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.